Welcome to the latest episode of the special series New VC, hosted by Freddie, an analyst at Isomer Capital and Linda, an associate at Karma Ventures. Today, we welcome Rebecca Lodzman-Ruda. Rebecca is an investment director at InVenture with years of experience in the VC world. Having made deals for a number of years, she was happy to share thoughts on successful deal-making, importance of founder relationship building, and the current state of the VC landscape. In a world where podcasts outnumber humans, we try at EUVC to be mildly more interesting. Tune in at eu.vc to watch this episode instead of just listening. eu.vc, where the extraordinary is just another Monday. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. We're super happy to have you with us. Let's just kick it off. Who are you? What do you do? How do you fit into this European VC ecosystem? And can you tell us what is your superpower? Okay. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. So quick intro to me. So I work as an investment director to get at Inventure, a Nordic Baltic fund focusing on early stage investing. And I've been an investor as well for the past almost nine years. Ended up in venture a little bit by accident, but got stuck because I really, really love the early stage investing. Um, it's also what, what I'm truly passionate about. I tend to fix a lot on sort of software, AI, data, nerdy stuff. Uh, also a bit of deep tech and clean tech. But we as a fund, um, yeah, very much a generalist fund. And I tend to be curious about a bunch of things as well. So, And so, I mean, what does early stage mean to you? Everyone has a different interpretation. Yeah. Do you go from pre-seed up to series A? Yeah. So as a fund, we can do pre-seed to seed to even early A runs. We can do ticket sizes from like 250K to 5 million euros. So it's really a luxury. We can look at anything that's early stage. It's very much about the founders and that potential. And then we can be flexible about when we come in. So that's very cool. And I think about 87% of the cases we've invested in for the past sort of 16 years or so as a fund within one of the first VCs on board or the first VC on board. We were, for example, in Vault. There were like six employees when we invested and there was really not that much in place. And that ended up uh, being a, a big success as well now. So we do like that really early phase. And and so how, how did you arrive at InVenture? What was your career beforehand? Yeah, so I started off my career at Ernst & Young. I, I learned a lot during my years at Ernst & Young, but I realized quite quickly that career wasn't really for me and wanted to go to the operational side and actually do stuff in the company. So I joined this group of companies as a CFO and then the, this group of company was going public. Uh, so I got it ready to go public and then the board changed it my and I instead joined as a CEO and head of investments. And that's how I started working a little bit with investments and been doing it ever since. So I've been at two funds before joining InVenture. You very conveniently avoided the question of superpowers. So what would you consider your superpower? I guess you'd send me a list. You're like, choose one of these. <laughs> so as I looked at the list and I think one of my best superpowers is probably empathy. I mean, when you work with, with really, really hardworking founders in the early stages where it's a lot about failing and failing many times and, and failing forward, hopefully, so you learn and iterate and get better. I think empathy is super important to have as, as an investor in that early stage life. And that's something I try to bring to the founders I work with and I'll always really have their back and, and be a very good listener and a good bouncing board. I hope I also sort of challenge them and, and bring 
that challenger status quo is something I like talking about. Like, how can we think in a different way to progress or move beyond the status quo? And also, <laughs> I'm, I'm like a... I'm a sci-fi and fantasy nerd from the very beginning. And I think once you've been that sort of nerd, you're you're always a nerd. 100%. <laughs> so, so I tend to be a dreamer. I, I, I'm quite good at sort of visualizing and dreaming about how something can, can look in the future. And when the founder comes with a very novel technology or an innovation, I can dream with them and sort of visualize how it can look in the future. And I think that's also something that's very important in sort of early stage investing. It's obviously super important to to be empathetic and and being able to you know relate to the founders et cetera, but 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 I guess that's not maybe the the, the first things that you think about when you think about deal making as such, and that's probably the least empathetic part of the process in many ways because after you've invested, you're in the same boat, you're kind of thinking on the same lines, but prior to that, there's a, a balance between you know trust. And, 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 and empathy, but also, you know, fund structures, et cetera. So how do you kind of go about making a deal? So, so when does it start for you? How does it go? And, and what is it about at its essence? I still think it's a lot about trust, though, for sure. We're not trading commodities here. It's not like a stock picker. <laughs> no, but how I go about it, I think it's really easy to make a deal. It's the easiest thing you can do. But to make a good deal, that's what's a lot harder in our industry. And I think it comes down to a couple of elements. One is, of course, making sure you have the right deal flow. And it's both a matter of quantity and quality. Because if you're missing the top percentile, the top 10%, you're going to miss all the good deals. It's a lot of hustling and a lot of outbound work, making sure you access those sort of best builders out there, building something very bold, crazy, that can be super big. I think last year we looked at about 3,000 deals and we invested in about 15 companies. So it's going through a lot of a lot of potential deals to begin with. And then we always try to think as a team first approach when we do that deal flow work, who is the best to put in front of this founder to maximize both the chances of winning, but also, of course, adding the right value and build the right relationship with the founder. So that's something I think we do really well as a team. And then the, the last thing about deal-making is, of course, sort of making the right call, <laughs> the right decision. And I think that's one of the hardest things because how do you know it's the right one? In venture, it's such delayed feedback loops. You might think you're doing really well for a couple of years and then you know, a crash comes and a company fails and, and something happens. So it's, it's, of course, super hard to know you're making the right call. But I think we try to be really fast to begin with when we make up our minds to not waste founders' time. And if we do like something, on the other hand, we can also be fast. So if we meet a founder and even if they're not sort of actively raising and we see a potential deal match, we try to go after it and then move to a positive decision fairly quickly as well. But it's a balance, right? You want to maybe move fast enough to win a deal, but you m want to move slow enough so you actually have time to both do the legwork and the DD you need to do to understand the space. But more importantly, get to know the founders and know that they have the drive, the experience, the qualities needed to build something really great. And also to know that we can work well together, we can add value, we can challenge in a good way. So I th I'd say those are sort of the main components when looking at sort of deal making. 
And as you've been at a kind of a few different funds, do you see that the basics are the same everywhere and it's only like a few things to change based on whether fund structure, team structure and, 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 and the competitiveness of markets, et cetera, or, or but doesn't change very significantly based on the fund? No, there are definitely differences and there can be a lot of differences still within the fund. I think we're quite good at operating as a team with a sort of common process and strategy, how we do things. But I think at, at other funds, it can be very individual as well, how each sort of partner or investor works. I think by I've been both at a fund where one of the partners could sort of shake hands in a meeting and say, we're in, <laughs> sort of first meeting. And, and another fund where it was maybe a, a little bit longer processes and very, very extensive uh, analysis and DD. So I've seen sort of both worlds and I guess uh, the perfect way of doing it is somewhere in between, right? Which is probably why you've chosen a place at Venture where probably having seen different ways of making deals makes, yeah. makes sense. So we do it also in two different ways. I'd say for the pre-seed bets we do, we do really fast decisions. And it's very much like 95% about the founders. So we spend a lot of time like taking references of founders and getting to know them. And that's what we spend time on. And then after about three meetings, they can have a commitment. And then on the seed, the deals, we spend a little bit more time with sort of more traditional due diligence and customer calls and expert calls and those, those things. Why is that? Because arguably the pre-seed is riskier. So more time yeah. should be allocated to place of greater risk. Yeah, it's, it's definitely riskier, but it's also so much more about the founders. So many of these pre-seed companies are going to pivot and change their strategy. And then it's more important that you have the right founder in place to be able to do that. But we also, of course, allocate less capital. So from the risk reward perspective, you know, it makes sense to not allocate too much resources and time on the DD. I think the upside, as long as the upside is still there and we really get conviction on the founders and that they have the resilience and the drive to build something really big, that's, that's the most important thing. How does it work? I was talking to Linda, you know, as we were sort of preparing for this call and, and I realized because I'm sort of so far removed and I realized that, you know, probably a lot of analysts are kind of in my boat where they're just joining, just starting to the exposure to deals and deal making. What is it that you have to go through to make a deal? So, I mean, we typically we have a first meeting. It's a 30 minute call. And I'd say maybe 90% of the deals we look at, we say no after that call. So we quite often are able to say no after just one call. We might be wrong, who knows, but or either the deal wasn't a match with our criteria, then we typically actually don't take a call in the first place, but something wasn't matching up, the founder wasn't strong enough, or we couldn't see the potential really being there. If we feel after the first call, hey, this deal could actually match our criteria, the founder is excellent. We try to involve one more person from the deal or for, from the team to do a second call. And then during that second call, we typically ask the founder to make sure we meet the other founders as well. And, and then it's a little bit of a longer call where we go deeper into sort of the product. Maybe they demo the product and we go a little bit deeper into the strategy when it comes to go to market. And if that call goes really well, then sometimes we bring it up for a sort of first excitement phase on a Friday meeting. And that can be after two or three meetings typically. And on the Friday meeting with the whole team, everyone gets to sort of say, we explain why we're excited. And then the whole team gets to say, is what risk do they see? Are they excited as well? Can they help in any way? Does someone have you know, 
an expert or a potential customer or anything that can help us both win the deal and understand it better. And yeah, and then we dive a little bit deeper in sort of a pre-DD phase, I guess you could say. And it can range from one to three weeks. It depends. A couple of more meetings with the team, a couple of expert calls, talking to customers. Often we try to source potential customers for, for the company we're looking at so we can hopefully add a little bit of value. We try to source potential maybe angels that we see can add value to this deal. So you always have to sell in parallel that you evaluate and those things need to go hand in hand. So I think when I first got into venture, it was a lot more like a dragon's den. I think you, the old school investors were sitting there going, you know, just asking all the tough questions and grilling the founders. Now it's a lot more about proving our value at the same time that we understand the, the founders and the business a lot better. And hopefully by the end of that process, both the founders and us feel that, hey, <laughs> we want to work together. We can make this happen. And then it goes up for a final decision with our whole team. We don't have only the partners in an IC. We include everyone, even our interns. Summer intern can ask questions. It's a very flat organization. And then uh, the founders get to present themselves for about half an hour or 20 minutes and 10 minutes questions. And then we have a discussion in the team and hopefully come to a positive decision. We don't need consensus. I don't believe in consensus when you're making venture bets. I think consensus deals will be the, you know, mid performers. And often where we disagree, that will be the outlier, either the, the worst performers or the best performers. So... It's okay to have a bit of an argument and it's okay to, for some to say no, we might still move forward. So that's the essence, I guess, getting to, to the commitment. Yeah, sorry, Linda. No, 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 but to follow on on that, it, it's a mix of like internal and external skills, right? Because from the one side on the external, you need to keep the founder interested in the deal. On the internal, you need to get your team excited about the deal. And I think both can be hard to balance because from one side, you don't want to oversell the fund. You don't want to kind of say something to the founder that is untrue or, or overpromise. On the other side, on the team side, you don't want to oversell either. You might be excited, but, but, but kind of keeping this. And I think this pressure, especially in like young people, you need to make deals, you need to bring in deals, give deals. So, you know, if you look at all of that, how do you first balance it and, and any kind of, you know, what is your kind of go-to thinking about these things and, 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 and how do you feel? Because I'm guessing now it's gut feeling by now, but when you started, how did you kind of manage that? When I was very new in venture, I acted a lot more like a project manager, like just getting things done, not always maybe stopping to fully think and trying to really, really understand and visualize the potential of the space and nerd in properly on, on both the the product and and the space in general i think i'm a little bit better at sort of also stopping and sort of thinking like a little bit further ahead like how can this actually look and play out and, and spend time on understanding alignment on the vision i guess the other thing that i'm hopefully getting better at and i think this is core is no not overselling to the founders obviously but make sure you spend time building that relationship in parallel so that you show that you're a good bouncing board you show that you're transparent and clear about the path ahead what you expect to see what's the next internal step how long will this take so you're very 
very transparent about where you're at in the sort of decision-making process or deal-making process. And uh, I try to move to, to like WhatsApp and be like quick about communication and open for them to call if they have questions and be like very available in the whole process because I think that builds uh, trust. As soon as we get a little bit serious, I also always offer like a bunch of references. Like I think the best way of getting to know me is talk about the founders I worked with before. So here are all the companies I work with. Let me know like who you want to talk to and I'll connect you. And I also think that hopefully builds trust because, I mean, we might work together for five, even 10 years. It's quite important to understand how I've operated sort of in the past as well or how we as a fund has worked with other other founders. So we often introduce other sort of portfolio companies as well. Sometimes those portfolio companies can be a potential customer. They can also be a good reference. So it can be with that sort of win-win situation again that we try to find. How uh, important is building that consistency or the qualities you just defined at the earlier stages of your career? So very important, I'd say. And early on in your career, getting access to your sort of deal flow sources. I guess there's no such thing as proprietary deal flow, but kind of, you know, constantly sort of increase your quality of deals coming in, the quality of founders you bring in. That will give you a real edge, I think, in venture in general. And you, everyone, I think, needs to find their way of doing it. But, I mean, obviously, building strong relationships, not just transactional relationships, is something I think is quite important. I see that mistake sometimes with young VCs. They're too transactional in their networking. If you don't, again, build trust, I don't think other angels or funds will give you their best deals. So you might get a lot of deals, though, but it will be not the quality you want to access. And I think still in our work, you need to do a lot of outbound. And you need to do a lot of search yourself on sort of LinkedIn or a lot of asking around who's building something. And and one key, key skill to master is that, that outbound work, reaching out to someone cold and getting hold of them and getting that first meeting. So I think about half of our deal flow today is, is outbound, at least. Do you think it's harder to get that trust when you do outbound? Because... I think that the VC ecosystem is, is on majority built on introductions. I think this is the, the kind of the, the, what we all try to guess. I think investors and founders the same. So does it start a relationship different if you get an intro versus yourself? So if you do want to access maybe very courted sort of founder, it, it can definitely be an advantage to try to get an intro from a common common friend or and an angel investor of theirs or early stage investor introducing you warmly, sure. But quite often, I think you also need to to be able to reach to a meeting through outbound. And it, it's a skill that takes a little bit of time to master. And I think the very outreach can seem a little bit transactional. I try to be clear about sort of what value I see I could add and make it a little bit personalized, so not do like mass, you know, generic outbound sendouts. Same with founders, actually. If we get way too many of those like generic inbounds without them having to done done any sort of research on who to reach out in to in the team and if it's actually a fit with sort of our fund focus. I think that's important, personalizing the outbound. And then of course you have the first meeting, hopefully, if you get it, to to prove that that value and, and that trust. We had two questions that were kind of the same, but I wanted to ask it, which is, you know, what are the core skills in, in, in deal making? And we've identified that, you know, there are 
various parts of the process. But I want to specifically focus on, on closing it with the founder. That's the key question, right? Always be closing as well. Seed is still fairly competitive, I'd say, uh, especially for the very sort of second time founders and very experienced founders. So I think when it comes to, to the key skills to closing a deal, I'd say one thing is, of course, speed, making sure you move a deal forward at the right speed and progress. The other thing is, of course, making sure you've proven your value enough along the way. So the founder actually wants to work with you and you win the deal. And we don't win 100% of our deal. And I also think that's fine. If we lose one or two, of course, we will be annoyed. <laughs> I, I love winning, so you do get a little bit annoyed. But it also means that we're going for the best deals, or at least the most um, attractive deals. Typically, you know, it might be either, you know, the founder wanting to go with a larger or a U.S. fund or a different kind of skill set in a fund. Maybe they're vertically oriented and has very clear sort of value in a certain sort of vertical, or they were able to offer a much higher valuation that of course happens as well. But I think quite often in a situation when there is comp competition and they are tempted to go for a higher valuation and a larger international fund, we try to <laughs> convince to it that at least in the very early stages, sort of pre-seed and seed, Going for too large a fund or too far away as well, you might not get the same commitment because you'll be one of very many companies and probably a very small investment in their very big fund. And they will sit a lot further from you and might not be able to add the same sort of value along the way. We try to sort of explain the benefits of having more of a hands-on sort of local lead and where you become very important to us and your success is sort of instrumental to mine and the fund's success. And hence we'll work like very hard to, to make it into a success. So I think, yeah, sometimes we're not able to convince, but most of the times we are. And then getting the actual deal done in the final phases, of course, there's some negotiations around sort of terms. And if you're a first time founder, you might not be that accustomed with sort of the typical VC terms. So there might be a bit of teaching and explaining why do we have these provisions or these vetoes or whatever it might be. And it's all often once you explain that it's actually a protection for each of the founders as well. It benefits them as well, hopefully. Typically not that dramatic. And I think these days, early stage terms are very market practice for most of the funds. And no one there so should <laughs> go outside sort of market practice so we try to try to stick there to also get the deal done so in, in your experience like what are the most common challenges that can make or break a deal because you know i think one of the options where it can go wrong is obviously deal terms but I, as you said you know especially in early stages the the terms are fairly generic i think in, in estonia like startup estonia has put together like a list of documents and many investors use like a you know, 95% of the same terms and maybe case by case change a little bit. But, you know, are there any terms and, and stages where you see that there is a higher risk? And what are those elements? And, and what are the broader kind of things that you've seen or, or often see that can, in the later stages, make or break a deal? I mean, occasionally it's definitely valuation, right? And I think some founders do get very carried away by, you know, a much higher valuation getting offered at a 
early stage. I think it can also be a bit dangerous. It's a bit like peeing your pants. Like it feels really, really nice when you get that high valuation and that massive round. <laughs> and then, you know, you still need to, that puts a lot of pressure on the growth you need to deliver and all, all the milestones you need to achieve to be able to do an up round. And otherwise that might be a bit of a poison pill for the next investor coming in. So I think it's a delicate balance of raising enough to achieve the milestones you need to achieve, but not too crazy high valuation at the early stage. So you can't like raise the next round. I would say that's probably the most common one. Occasionally you get stuck on sort of how much uh, or how long should our shares vest, but that's always something we can agree on and find a compromise. So in general, it's pretty straightforward. Maybe like a cap table as well. Yeah, of course. Uh, especially if you have a cap table that comes with a bit of legacy and a bit of a mess. That can be something you might need to clean up to get a deal done. And sometimes we might propose a higher option pool compared to what the current investors would like. And then it can be a bit of a dialogue getting the sort of current investors on board on the larger option pool, because that's usually something that comes in place before our round. So yeah, it can be those things, of course, to align on. Yeah, and sometimes we redo the board arrangement a little bit. We might want to take away one investor that has come in earlier. But for most of the cases, we're the first ones in, and then it's not an issue. But occasionally you find, you know, someone who's had a very large board of like angels or where we need to sort of redo it a little bit just to optimize. Also, if they're, I guess, professionalize, like, yeah, exactly. stage, right? But normally that's not anything too dramatic at the early stages. We just started touching on, on that negotiation piece of where to compromise, where to stick your ground in, in the term sheet negotiation. For those who haven't seen it, what does a good one look like? What does a bad negotiation look like? And are there any examples you could give? Maybe, maybe... We phrase it and we go, what should it look like and what does it look like? Okay. So I think we try to, in negotiation, optimize for mainly three things, I'd say. Like, do we get enough ownership with our ticket size so it matches our criteria? And we're probably more strict on ownership than valuation because in the early phases, normally the exact one or two million up and down valuation-wise might not matter as much as the ownership you come in with because just looking at the typical dilution, say say 50% from seed up till they become a unicorn, hopefully. And then if we don't own, say be up towards sort of 15%, 12 to 15%, say we come in at 10 and we in the end own 5% of a unicorn that still doesn't return our fund. So... Ownership, I think, is the one, the first thing we try to optimize for. And then how much capital does the company actually need and to achieve the milestones? That's the second thing to agree on and negotiate around. And sometimes we challenge the founders. They might think they need too little. And we look at the plan together, maybe challenge that, hey, you might actually need a little bit more to do what you want to achieve. And sometimes it's the other thing, hey, you're trying to raise a little bit too much and we're not in the business of having money in a bank account for three years, you know, so we want to invest the money you need in sort of the next 18 to 24 months. And then the last thing is sort of how much dilution actually makes sense for the founders at this stage, because we're very mindful of the founder's incentive and want them to own, you know, have a very strong incentive and not get too diluted in the early stages. I'd say in the very early phases between 15 and 25%, where I think 20 the middle middle there is, is the most common one. When you 
look at like a great deal. Let's say that, you know, every year there's these like few buzzwords that everybody's kind of looking at, everybody's saying it's the future. Right now it's like generative AI and, and anything to do with that. You know, beforehand, Web3 for a while, Metaverse. What is your policy on, you know, sometimes a great deal is a great deal. And, 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 and at, le at least it's seemingly like, you know, everything seems to match up, but maybe the valuation is too high. So do you guys sometimes say, hey, let's go a little bit lower on the, the ownership or let's compromise here or like the FOMO is massive, right? Like, especially on these like super attractive deals. So how do you keep a clear mind and understand, is it the business case and the actual company or is it... Is, is it the market that's creating this excitement or, or do you have any like advice on, on, on how to survive another like 2021 type of here's my money, no due diligence needed type of investing? We were never a big fan of that way of investing, stayed away from those deals, the very, very FOMO driven deals during 2021. I'm glad we did because <laughs> I think a lot of those deals are not looking great today. With that said, I mean, sometimes there's reason for FOMO, uh, reason for us to get involved if the founders are outstanding. You know, Spotify come very highly recommended from our network, building something very exciting that can become very, very big. And then, I mean, we try to be fast moving again. We try to make sure we show that value and occasionally we might compromise a little bit with ownership. And we do, I should say, at pre-seed, we do not care as much about ownership. It's more, a lot more important for us at seed stage because at pre-seed, we can always step up and put in hopefully more money or co-lead or lead the next round. So it's a lot more important for us at, at seed. But yeah, Linda, occasionally, I guess it happens that we compromise, but we try to be fairly strict to our portfolio strategy. Because I think if you compromise too many times, why even have a portfolio strategy, then, you know, it will quite quickly fail. Um, there's only so many deals we're going to do. So I slightly want to challenge you on that and go, you know, at, at the C stage, I'm guessing you'll never really argue on the valuation more than plus or minus 10 million maximum. Mm. So surely you'll be kicking yourself if, you're not investing in that 10 million higher valuation when it goes on to become a unicorn. Okay, it might not be a fun return. Yeah. You can't fault that that's an amazing investment. Oh, you mean if we come in with like a smaller ownership than our... Coming in with a smaller ownership rather, and, rather than saying no. I don't know, because that money could go to another company also becoming a unicorn where we actually own, own more than where it could return the fund. So I think since we don't know which ones are going to be unicorns, you kind of have to stay... You mean there's not a crystal ball? No, there's no crystal ball. So you have to stay fairly true to your process and to your criteria. Otherwise, I think you become too much of a cowboy in this industry. Do not sort of own up to the promise we've given our LPs. But so, no, we, we, we try to be fairly consistent in sort of following our criteria. And occasionally we do go down to 10 and that can present ownership and that can be motivated. But uh, yeah, we try to stay at least between 10 and 15%. One thing that has been discussed extensively and things that you hear that in the, in the VC space is that there's a super strong analogy between the, the kind of the investor relationship with the founder and, and talk about a marriage so that you should kind of vet your investor and vet your founders uh, and look for partners as you would for marriage. So would you kind of agree 
on that? Like, is it is it a ten year relationship? Does it have to be a ten relationship? What are your What are your thoughts on that? Maybe the marriage analogy is not the perfect one. Uh, I agree because I mean, typically we try to add the most value in the early phase. And then we're quite comfortable if an excellent sort of A round or B round investor comes in with a new sort of toolbox and set of experiences and skills. We don't have to be continuously active all the way through. Maybe someone else takes over that role and adds value in the next phase. So in that sense, it's not like a marriage from day one to the very end. We try to continuously have the trust of the founder and stay you know, have their, their their ear and listen to them when needed throughout. Yes, but we definitely are the most active in the early phase, the phase we're the best at. And then for the very best companies that are doing amazing, they might not need that much help. And we're not going to force help on them just because. And then quite often we even step out of the board. We don't need to have a board to just as symbolic, hey, we're on the board of this successful company. If we're not adding value, we don't need to sit there. So I think that's important as well. And I'd say we try to, we do an exercise where we analyze the portfolio and we try to identify sort of the the mid performers that could become the top performers that need the most value add, where we can actually move the Pareto curve, if you may. Uh, so they can become the top sort of 10% in the portfolio and focus our efforts on on those ones and be quite strict on, yeah, not spending too much time on the top performers that don't need our help. And maybe the ones that, you know, have are starting to fail, like make sure we can can finish that relationship in a good way and maybe even try to sell companies that we see are not reaching their vision or maybe the market timing failed or changed somehow. Whilst you're speaking, I was thinking of various, very, very bad analogies for some kind of open relationship as you bring other partners in at these stages. <laughs> One of the things that I feel has been a bit of a running theme in what you've been saying is this different, the, the evolution of becoming a good investor is this ability to take a step back and think and have a bit of perspective. And you just use that example of, you know, the board seat. Am I really providing value add here? Is this where I should be spending my time? Is this where the founders should be spending their time with me? And use that sort of analogy of actually, when you start in VC, you're a bit more of a project manager in the way you approach things. So, I, so my question is, what would you recommend and what are good points in day-to-day VC or, or, or through the journey where you should be taking a step back and, and thinking bigger? I think if you can start doing that as early on as possible, that will make you into a great investor. And the best investors I know are the ones that are reading a lot, thinking a lot, very, very curious about new, you know, new innovations, new technologies, new things in general. And I think something we've started doing for the past year and a half or so is spending a little bit more resources and time and encouraging our young uh, investors to do that as well. Properly deep diving in areas you're excited about, where we see potential and trying to invest time to understand properly and formulate opinions what we want to do in that area. What do we want to invest in into the energy transition? And also be very clear what we don't want to invest in and have internal sort of investment theses 
I think that helps guide our deal work. So not just becomes this FOMO driven, you know, listen, what's the hot deal and run after it, but actually spending time understanding this is what we believe and finding companies that match that belief. So be a lot more structured in the deal work for that specific area. And also hopefully that helps us win deals because we show we know a little bit more. We have a little bit more meat on the bones when it comes to that, that specific area. And I believe that's part of becoming this more thinker as an investor rather than just a doer. And one, one of my role models in VC is Union Square Ventures that I think does this really, really well. And I've been doing that from the very start, very thesis driven. We try to share our thesis as well on our blog and I'm fine being wrong. I think it's better to, to have an opinion and share our thoughts and then encourage people to challenge us. So if a founder comes to me and say, hey, I read your piece about data infrastructure. I think you're wrong on this point and this is why. That's also positive, right? Because it shows, you know, we can have a dialogue about something more, a little bit more initiated than the sort of half smart generalist, you know, cowboy. <laughs> no. So, so I do think early on as an investor start thinking about what you're interested in and nerd, nerd a lot, <laughs> nerding on things a lot and read a lot. I think that helps you become a better investor comes back to one of your initial points was sort of failing forward. You know, yes. Just because you put out a piece on thought, of thought leadership doesn't mean that someone else can't challenge you and you can learn more from that. I use a mental model because like, it's risky and scary to invest, right? And a lot of the investments we make are going to fail. And to get over that, I try to think, is this a company we want to exist? So when we look back 20 years from now, we're going to be proud of supporting this company being built. And even if it fails along the way, it was something we wanted to see part of our future, something shaping our future in a positive way. And if that is fulfilled, <laughs> then you can take the risk, especially if it's a founder that you really, really want to get well. So over the course of your time in VC and 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 then having seen different stages in kind of VC overall and the market, do you think that a lot has changed in, in, in venture uh, and the people uh, that, that it attracts, that the, the way that we make decisions and, and, and overall as an industry, has there, has there been much that has changed? I do think that has changed a lot in a positive way over the past years in venture, especially on the people skills level. I think these days, a typical VC investment team is a lot more diverse, still not as diverse as I wish it would be, but a lot more diverse than when I started nine years ago. More women, more people from a different kind of background, not just when I started was a lot of only sort of ex sort of investment bankers and management consultants. Now you see people with, you know, startup experience, you see people coming from the marketing or creative space even. So uh, it's a lot more diverse and definitely more emphasis, I think, with this uh, EQ <laughs> as well as IQ, people be being able to, to build those strong relationships. And that's definitely key. Early on, at least, a lot of people came into VC with PE backgrounds or investment banking backgrounds. So a diff completely different mindset when it comes to rather minimizing risk <laughs> in terms than optimizing for success. And that's, we've grown as a asset class a lot. So in a good way, that's definitely changed in a positive manner. And in deal terms, at least at precedent seed, I think are typically quite standard and fair. 
But I'd say at later stages at the moment, we're seeing a lot of crazy terms being flown around. We recently saw um, a term for a later round with like a 3x, lick, you know, lick pref, you know, crazy overvaluation. And there's a lot of these on a vultures, if you want to call them that in a yeah mean way, maybe. But there's some of that going on, I think, in the later stages, people trying to use the situation a little bit with a little bit crazy terms. I think it's happening more at that level. Thought we'd, we'd, we'd move on to the, the final quick fire that doesn't have to be quick fire. The first one is, what are the skills that have been surprisingly crucial to your day-to-day? One general one is the power of knowing what you don't know. Early on, don't fool yourself for knowing too much and have that open and curious, open mind to everything you meet. Meeting people with kindness and empathy in the day-to-day. The cold outbound thing that I mentioned, that that's actually quite, if you can do that in a good way, it's a very good day-to-day skill. And then the, the final one I can say, staying focused when you jump between, you know, 20 different things. Founder calling with a really, you know, hard topic. And next time you're talking to a space tech founder, <laughs> building a new kind of satellite company. So staying focused and that sort of. Sorry, sorry, can I ask, what do you mean by staying, as in staying focused on what each interaction is? Yeah, so being able to jump between very different topics and very different meetings. So from a portfolio company crisis, you know, to meeting a new company with a new type of technology and innovation and having the power to switch and actually focus and listen in that conversation. Because we spend, Linda and you guys are probably the same, you know, all day, 10, 12 meetings a day. Like, so the ability to stay focused is definitely one of, and actively listen to founders is very key. Looking back now to your own career and, and, and bearing in mind that the majority of our listeners still, are still kind of in the early stages of their career, what advice would you, would you give to them and what would you do differently now yourself if you were back in the beginning of your career in venture capital? Good question. I think I could have been a little bit more fearless early on when it comes to like approaching people and getting mentors and advice. People are a lot more open and generous in general than I originally realized. I think people have surprised me in a positive way over the years. I think I earlier could have gotten a strong mentor and, and that's something I recommend like early VCs to do. Find that experienced mentor that can be your bouncing board along the way. And I guess the other thing is what I've mentioned, like be very, very curious and read a lot and think a lot on top of running around and meeting everyone and being that doer and that project manager. Take the time to to stop and think as well. So stay focused, but also dream. Also dream, yes. <laughs> and and quite don't be too scared early on. It's hard what we do, yes. Uh, uh, and it's easy to, if you overanalyze analyze a case and only think about the risks, the easiest thing out there is, is shooting down something if you overanalyze and only, only think about the risks. So I think you early on need to acquire this ability to what needs to happen for me to believe in this? And can I believe that? That ability, yeah, I guess to dream <laughs> and see, see what it can become. That's a really nice spin on it. 
Do you also think, Rebecca, that this is where diversity of the team in, in, in all of the different matters, in all, but specifically uh, in, with regards to age, can, can actually benefit the team? So, you know, making sure that everybody has a voice in their teams is actually super, super beneficial, especially in this regard. Yeah. And I think that's so true, Linda. And the longer you spend in this industry, the more bias you acquire and the harder it is to stay away from being sort of cynical. And I think that's why you need to have those young, curious minds coming into your team and not having too hierarchical team then, but actually listen to even an intern or whoever have that flat uh, organization, I think is super important. Very Swedish on me, right? <laughs> Rebecca, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's been a lovely conversation, many takeaways. And yeah, thank you so much. Any final words of wisdom that you want to impart? That's I guess the only thing then that I always say to founders, I mean, I could be wrong. Like we could all be wrong. Like right, we, that can be edited we, out. <laughs> wait, you, you gotta follow your own, the power of knowing what you don't know. Like you gotta follow your own sort of convictions and beliefs and listen to advice, but yeah, take it for what it is. Thank you for listening to this special episode on the European VC. If you love our show, join our community by subscribing at eu.vc.